Welcome to Guy Aitchison's Reinventing the Tattoo, where tattooers, apprentices, artists, and just the curious, not just the curious, and the curious, are welcome to come and learn and share and be inspired and ultimately get better tattoos. Today's a great uh, Reinventing the Tattoo podcast show uh, with a really special guest. Uh, we've got John uh, Schwick. I'm horrible with the names. My pronunciation is horrible, but uh, Guy got it right the first time, and uh, it's going to be awesome. He's a, a chemist, so we are going to learn about what he has learned about tattoo inks and how they react to light and in the skin and all of that and obviously inks are something we are all very interested in learning about yeah. now um, so you can find i don't know where you're beaming in from or on the facebook's and on a various youtube channels but if you always go to either of the app stores either apple or the google store and download the reinventing the tattoo app then you will always find the latest uh schedule for the live streaming we're beaming out about five to seven times a week now with awesome you know like an inspirational tattoo programming um, as well as the library the growing inspirational archive of all of these shows there's drawing groups there's art jams there's instructional videos for painting and all sorts of discussions. It's great for your front room or for listening to and while you're getting tattooed or, or, or doing tattoos to let the time uh, go a little bit quicker. And it's, um, anyway, it's very inspiring. So thank you for tuning in. You could also find us on the brand new Reinventing the Tattoo podcast. I thought you know I was, I thought I was going to say YouTube channel, but uh, that's, that's almost new. Uh, catch us either on the, the podcast stores. We are up on Spotify, Reinventing the Tattoo podcast. Podcast, and Apple's going to catch up pretty soon. If you're watching a replay, it should be up. And the brand new Reinventing the Tattoo YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, please uh, subscribe uh, or follow it. And then uh, share it around a little bit. It's brand new, so we could use a little uh, uh, juice. Okay, we have... Um Let's see, I want to plug our sponsors because they help actually make this free for you. Uh, Inkjet Stencils is a, a system where you can create your tattoo reference right there on your iPad or your computer and print it out from your eco-tank, uh, eco eco-friendly tank uh, Epson printer. So you could do uh, intricate stencils, but you're not like ruining your hands or taking tons of time. It saves some dough. And they have some webinars inside of the app as well as... You can go to inkjetstencils.com. Loose Screw Tattoo is an awesome tattoo shop in Richmond, Virginia, led by Jesse Smith. He has a couple interviews and webinars out uh, across the internet. Do a search for Jesse Smith Tattoo Interview, and uh, you'll find a whole bunch of them. Uh, he did one recently with us, uh, particularly about um, uh, awesome tattoo shop environments and whatnot, and, and what kind of people uh, are great to work for and work with, and how it's a little bit about his journey. Anyways, uh, loosescrewtattoo.com. Click the uh, join our team. Wicked busy, and there's actually health, dental, vacation, 401k options if you want to have a real career. It's pretty sick. Uh, he's also obviously big into art, art nights, all that. Let him know that reinventing the tattoo sent you. Rawpigments.co is a tattoo uh, pigment company, ink company out of California and they are I believe acrylic free vegan they're getting their pigments right from the source they're very uh, knowledgeable about what's going in and um, we're excited to have them on board you can get some samples of the uh, raw pigments as well as Cheyenne has a mess of cartridges and uh, some little backpacks uh, this is the reinventing the tattoo goodie bag if you want to Get it actually the, currently the the best way to do it is to you, you'll be not forced to but you'll be excited to watch uh, the equinox party replay go to reinventingthetattoo.com equinox you could sign up for the replay and then on that watch screen not only is there an awesome hour and a half video of android jones doing amazing visuals you see behind us and aja lu doing amazing sounds which i probably should be playing but you'll you'll check it out uh, on the replay um, underneath uh, you'll find the the form to fill out for the these goodie bags and so yeah so you get some raw pigments you get some cheyenne cartridges and maybe some other good stuff in there and uh yeah okay so i am going to oh affiliates uh check out the fireside tattoo network it's a, uh, an amazing podcast and youtube channel hosted by jake meeks the apprentice diaries hosted by amy nichols that uh, focuses on the apprentice journey uh primarily in tattoos but she uh, reaches out to all sorts of other apprenticeships and then eco-friendly tattoo supplies has a couple of links to to places that have eco-friendly tattoo supplies. Okay, now I thank you everybody for this uh, being patient while we get to this awesome interview. I'm going to ping myself into the background and let Guy introduce Lauren and John. Okay. 
Thank you, Gabe. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And uh, this is super exciting because uh, it's rare to get this kind of a specific uh, inside scientific, uh, scientific view of our actual chemistry of our art form. And this is one of these things we take for granted. And as practicing artists across the, the decades, we've just sort of very carefully tried things out and figured out what was the safest. And so we've got this very broad sense of, okay, this works, this doesn't, we've avoided all these, we've phased out mercuric sulfite. Uh, and uh, of course there's this communication between the clients and their artists. If someone has a problem, they'll come back and tell us if we find the same pigments giving us a problem. We quit using it, we tell the manufacturer, we tell our friends, these things quickly kind of get squeezed out. And it's ended up resulting in what appears to be a, a, a fairly safe uh, set of uh, products out there that, uh, that we've come to really rely on. Now we're uh, looking at uh, threats of pigment bands and things like that. And so it's really feeling like time to get informed. So Dr. John's work is here to uh, give us uh, what he's learned, and uh, this is the photochemistry of tattooing, and uh, so we're getting very specific. We've also got uh, uh, Lauren Gregory here with us. She's going to be doing the bulk of the questioning. She is, uh, in addition to uh, being a reinventing the tattoo staff member, uh, she is also uh, a longtime pigment industry insider. So she's really got some. Uh, you know, she's going to be questioning from a. Uh, knowledgeable place. I'm very uh, excited to, to hear what they have to say. I'm going to be popping in every now and then with, uh, I'm a tattooer who doesn't really know a lot of science on this stuff kind of questions. And we also would love to hear your questions in the chat room and uh, at, at a point somewhere near the end of uh, our discussion today, uh, Gabe will be reading off those questions. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get answers to most of them. Uh, John, thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about how you arrived at uh, this particular line of inquiry and uh, where you came from as a scientist? Yeah, so, you know, my background is, it, is in looking at how you can use light to drive, you know, chemical reactions that are relevant for renewable energy. Um, and so when I got to Binghamton and started my independent career, one of the questions I was really interested in is, could you start thinking about tattoos for medical purposes, sort of as medical diagnostics, right? If you have diabetes, could you have a tattoo that would you know, read your insulin level in real time and, and let you know? Um, and it quickly became apparent to me that one, I absolutely did not have the skill level to get anywhere near that kind of a question. But as I was reading, what I, I started to understand is that there was a lot we didn't understand about tattoos, right? There was, there was sort of, you'd see these kind of pulses of work over the years, um, but not a lot happening in the United States, not a lot happening recently, a lot of unanswered questions. And, you know, I'd talk to, to friends and colleagues in the scientific community and I'd say, yeah, isn't this really interesting? Like, you know, we don't understand, you know, what like, why does a tattoo fade, right? I mean, that's a, that's a really simple question that I, I just don't think we know the answer to. Um, and everybody I, I talked about to it just thought it was fascinating, right? They really, they really liked it. They, they, you know, were really taken by the question. We'd spend a half an hour talking about this and then, you know, get around to, to talking about what my lab was actually working on. And so I thought, well, let's, let's pitch it to NIH, National Institutes of Health, and see if they'd be interested in funding something along these lines and, and they were. Um, and so we, we have a great team that's, that's trying to, to answer some of these questions and, and sort of fill, fill some gaps in our understanding. Okay. Uh, have uh, you been aware of the, the recent uh, controversies about uh, pigments, specifically the fallow blues and greens? And uh, there, there was some, uh, tug of war over legislation in Europe. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, it's kind of on hold for the time being. I don't really know the details because this is sort of a developing situation. Uh, this is a bill that's come through the United States as well and has also uh, been stalled for the time being. And, and uh, I, th I think actually was, was killed on the house floor, but it, it may come back, especially if uh, such a thing happens in Europe. 
Uh, are you have you been following this? A little bit, and I think what's motivating some of that is, at least my understanding, is that you can have copper thalocyanins that we think are relatively safe. They're sort of similar to um, in structure to the pigments in plants, right? To to kind of you squint your eyes and look at it that way. The problem is that the version that has fluorine on it um, is not as safe and they're somewhat hard to distinguish. So there was some work out of Europe maybe about 10 years ago that found the fluorinated version showing up in a lot of pigments. So if you've got you know high-end chemical equipment, you can spot the difference pretty easily. But if you don't, they're a little bit indistinguishable. And I think that's, I, you know, I, I haven't followed it in great detail, but I think that's what's motivating it is that it can be difficult to distinguish. Are you working with something that we think is relatively safe or are you actually getting a sample of something that looks and behaves in a lot of ways very similarly, but that we think is a carcinogen. Um, and I think that's a problem that happens a lot in generally with pigments because, you know, unless you have the, the tools to dig into it, it can be hard to really understand, am I getting a pure sample of this? Am I getting this specific molecule I think I'm getting, or am I getting something that's similar, but you know, might have an important difference in terms of how the, the atoms come together? Okay, well, before <laughs> I hand you over to Lauren for, for our, her questions, I think that I, I have one final like working tattooist kind of question that I think uh, everyone in this industry would probably be curious to know is uh, have there actually been documented cases of health issues, skin, lymph, et cetera, that could uh, provably be traced back to tattoos? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And the answer is a little bit murky. So I'm sure, you know, you and your audience know that, that there are definite documented issues of long-term allergic responses to tattoo inks. Um, in particular, red inks are notorious for this. Um, the, the, the challenge I think is, so, you know, when, when people ask me, you know, this, the way I answer this question is, you know, obviously people are not getting tattoos and dropping dead. So there is some degree of, you know, safety. What we don't understand though, is what we should be looking for. So there's been a couple of studies that have looked for incidences, incidences of skin cancer with people that are tattooed and they haven't necessarily found, um, they haven't found, you know, an obvious correlation there. The problem, as I see it, is that because we don't understand one really, really understand how these inks are changing in the body, breaking down, um, I don't think we really know what we need to look for. And beyond that, I think there's a there's an important distinction between somebody who has a tattoo on their back that's not visible or exposed to light versus somebody who may have you know, may have sleeves and, and there's a lot more light exposure going on there. What we do know for sure is that the pigments can become mobile, right? There's documented cases of tattoo pigments ending up in lymph nodes that can cause issues. Um, say for example, if you have to remove lymph nodes for breast cancer surgery uh, because of the, the darkening that happens in those, those nodes. So we know that the pigments can become mobile but the problem is we don't know how they're becoming mobile, what is actually getting out into the body, and as a consequence, what do we need to look for? And so that's sort of where we see our role is just trying to say, well, what should we be asking about? Um, at least in, in some respects, right? where, where should we be looking to understand if there's even a concern? And there may not be, um, I think, from my perspective, we don't know well enough though, whether or not there is something to, to some problem that we're unaware of. Right, right. Yeah, I guess uh, one of the other things that uh, I don't remember where I heard this, but from personal experience, I could uh, back this up is, you know, one, one thing that will 
very much mobilize these pigments is getting laser treatments. Mm -hmm. And uh, particularly the color pigments, uh, they're probably going to undergo some, uh, you know, complex chemical changes under the laser. Um, I know that blacks break apart the most easily and they tend to be, you know, carbon-based, uh, uh, you know, more uh, you know, simple kind of uh, things and are probably not as much of an issue. Uh, but uh, yeah, my, my wife has uh, had some blue pigments uh, lasered and this is, this is a long time ago. And uh, shortly after that, uh, she had a lymph node in the bottom of her chin, which kind of like filled up and stiffened. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, one of the things that uh, I think I'd asked about Dr. Chris Ferry earlier, uh, he had said that, yes, uh, we definitely do collect some pigment in the lymph nodes, but that there hadn't been any documented uh, issues as a result of that. And we collect other things in our lymph nodes too. You know, part of the, the problem <laughs> is that in general, tattoos, I think from a, a funding perspective, both in this country and Europe are generally sort of looked at as an elective cosmetic decision. And therefore, you know, if there's a medical consequence, so be it, that's, you know, the, the individual's choice. And so there's not a lot of eagerness to fund work that looks into these things, right? There's not, there's not a lot of money out there to, to fund sort of large scale studies to try to understand, you know, again, what, what's going on and, and where there may or may not be a, a potential concern. And so, you know, it's, it's something that, and again, as you know, not all, part of the other problem is not all tattoos are created equal, right? There's no, there's no standardization of inks. Um, there's not even necessarily, you know, how it's done in the U.S. isn't necessarily the same as how it's done in Europe. I mean, as you know, each individual artist can, there can be some variation in like the depth of the embedding. So there's all of these factors that are not easy to tease out. And at the same time, there's not a lot of effort being put into to developing the kind of large scale studies that are really required to to look at the different factors individually and, and spot things going on. Yeah. So there's, you know, a small community of us that are, are trying to ask some of these questions and, and at least provide some, some sense of, you know, what do we need to, to think about? Yeah, we, we uh, had another uh, scientist on uh, uh, our channel last week, uh, uh, Dr. Dieter Wolf, uh, who was an archeologist and uh, he's been uh, studying uh, tools from thousands of years ago that have been used for tattooing. And uh, there was a, a perception for a while when they first found uh, Utsi, the Iceman, they found tattoos on him. And the, the, these academics are like, uh-huh, well, clearly he was part of a criminal gang. I guess they had criminal gangs back then. And I guess his, his fellow gang members waylaid him and took his gold and killed him and left him in the ice. And yeah, look at those tattoos, right? Uh, and you know, that's in stark contrast to what we know about indigenous cultures that tattoo each other today, mm -hmm. where uh, it's a rite of passage that's expected of you if you're going to be an adult. Uh, if you are royalty, you're going to have a particularly magnificent set of tattoos. So, that you know, I mean, our anthropologists know this about tattoos, and yet they still ended up filtering through this idea of this kind of 1950s, look at, oh yeah, look at this drifter with his tattoos that he got while he was in prison you know uh and so it's just just now uh there's starting to be this sort of eye-opening moment of oh wow okay this is a mainstream human culture thing that has always been around and it's around on a very large scale right now and so at bare minimum uh maybe it just needs to be looked at as a, a public uh, health issue the same way you would look at food safety and that kind of thing because yeah it's elective if you want to eat junk food or not eat junk food but we should still know whether the junk food is going to kill the people that eat it or not. Right. I mean, that makes sense. I completely agree. And I would say, you know, there's a lot of research on smoking, alcohol um, usage, you know, and, and so I, I think there is some bias in this too. 
um, in terms of, of how these things are viewed. And, you know, of course there are beyond that actual medical applications, you know, from, from a cosmetic standpoint, you know, people that have had reconstructive surgery. So I think they're, they're important questions to be asked. Obviously I think they're important questions since, you know, we, we've got a, a lot of work going on on this, but you know, the, when you consider the scale of tattooing globally versus the number of people that are working on it, it's, it's very small. And so we're trying to, to identify the questions that we can realistically answer and at least help set a baseline that maybe could, could be used to advocate for more research, more funding. Nice. Well, I think that uh, a little bit more work going on between the scientific community and the tattoo community. I think that uh, it, if we had more communication, uh, we're able to, to share more experiences and data, uh, you know, we, we could actually achieve some remarkable things. We, we love chatting with tattooers. Um, and, and, you know, we, we try to start there so that we're looking at things that are relevant and not, not you know, irrelevant. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to hand you over to Lauren. She's got some uh, some questions prepared that are uh, much more scientific, and I'm going to be lurking in the shadows here. Uh, I'm going to uh, mute myself, and I'll be popping back on later on uh, uh, before we uh, hit the audience questions. So, uh, yeah. Th thanks again for uh, for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, can you hear me all right, John? Yeah. Loud and clear. Great. Cool. I, I love hearing from you. So connected a little while ago, kind of touched on a few things we'll talk about. But um, for the viewers here, I would love to talk about your current research. Like what is a day in the life of, of studying these things, like the equipment used? And um, can you shed some light on that? For yeah. Um, so we we have a, a, a few sort of parallel research streams going on. Um, there are a couple of students and a collaborator on the team that are working on uh, growing human dermal cells, okay. you know, as, at least as a model, right? It's, it's not a perfect model for skin, but it, it's a start. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, trying to look at, you know, how do these dermal cells you know, react to tattoo inks? How do they react when we start illuminating those inks with light? Um, and the idea there being, you know, are we, you know, if we have red ink, red, you know, red ink present and we start illuminating it, do we see a massive die off in cells or do we see something strange happening there? So trying to kind of understand, okay, are we releasing some sort of hazard, some sort of toxic decomposition product? Um, what's going on there? We've got another sort of stream looking at what's actually happening at, at sort of a molecular level when we start illuminating these things. So, you know, if we hit them with a laser versus if we just sort of hit them with, you know, white light, you know, sort of simulated sunlight, can we actually quantify, you know, if we start with pigment yellow 77, for example, what does that break down into, right? What are the, what are the molecular components there? Um, and again, try to understand, you know, maybe the pigment that we're starting with is, you know, there aren't any concerns, but by the time it undergoes some photochemistry, some, some changes with light, you know, it may be releasing something that's a known hazard. So can we understand what's going on there? We've got another direction working with a, a great collaborator um, in Texas, trying to actually understand how laser tattoo removal works. So, you know, it, it may surprise you and your audience, you know, laser tattoo removal is something like an $11 billion a year industry. And the science under, underpinning it is purely speculative, right? When you follow the chain of research back, you find out that the whole industry is based on a paper that has nothing to do with tattoos. It has nothing to do with the materials that are in tattoos. It's a completely different system. And so we, we believe that, that what's actually happening when you're zapping these things with a laser is, you know, at best a matter of speculation. And so our collaborators have techniques to actually sort of watch the laser hit the tattoo ink and then see what happens. Does it fragment in real time or, you know, is something else happening that's 
you know, killing off the cells around it, what, what's going on. And then the last um, sort of area we work on is just trying to understand what's in commercial tattoo inks. So for example, um, I don't remember the specific supplier, but you know, we, we purchased something like 20 or 30 inks from, from a company uh, and we looked at their safety data sheet and they're all the exact same, right? There's no, there's no chemical information there. There's no specific um, information as to what's going into these pigments. Some manufacturers disclose that, some don't. Um, in Europe, when there was sort of a, a pulse of research on this about a decade ago, there were a few studies that looked at what was in tattoo inks. And almost universally, they found that in the inks they looked at, there were presence of metals that weren't listed in the ink, on the ink labels. There were issues where the, the inks were mislabeled. So what was we were talking about earlier with the thalocyanins, um, that you know heavy metal excuse me heavy metal level levels were much higher than you would predict um and what's interesting about the last example is that the method they used to to break the inks down when we tried to replicate it we, we learned it doesn't actually break the inks down all the way so that snapshot was was incomplete so we do a lot of works just studying inks themselves um, we use what's known as microwave digestion. So it's basically a, a, you know, an ultra intense microwave that causes very high heating um, under pressure. And we do that because if there are metal containing components in the inks, we put uh, strong acids in, in with those inks and that breaks the, the inks down. And then we can quantify the metal in those inks. Um, we do a lot of electron microscopy to actually look at the structure of these inks, you know, on, on a very small scale to try to see, you know, what's going into it. Are we looking at sort of small nanomaterials that there may be some concerns about them becoming mobile in the body or, you know, is it sort of big bricks of pigment or something in between? Um, and we do some other work just again, trying to, to quantify what's actually in the pigment, is it what, in the, in the case where we have some information, is it what's on the label or is there something else in there? Um, early returns suggest that the issue of mislabeling or incomplete labeling may also be um, present in some of the inks that we've looked at. Um, it's certainly you know not necessarily all of the inks in this country, but we're finding inks that are only supposed to contain copper. And when we digest them, there's something else in there, probably cobalt. Um, so that's sort of how we approach this. Um, and the goal with the last, last part looking at the inks is partly to inform the other areas of research. So we know what we should be looking at in terms of, you know, making our own inks to test things, you know, should there be solids, molecular pigments, a combination of both, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and then also our, our long-term goal with that is to start making this data available to the wider community so that, you know, there is some, some degree of insight if you're, you know, choosing your inks um, and you have, you know, a, a customer who's got a chromium allergy that, you know, we can say, look, this ink is full of chromium, this might not be a good choice. And, and also, try to create a, at least a snapshot of what is in the inks now so that 10 or 20 years from now, we have some record in case we need it at that point. Absolutely, that actually brings me to ask you about what's in my ink.com and any efforts you've made there. It's uh, a great resource, I've checked it out. Um, it's got a lot of different um, compositional things listed there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, our, one of the things we learned really early on when we started thinking about this, um, and you know, I, I think it's obvious to, to everybody here, but that you know, the, the world of tattooers is, you know, it's a very professional community. 
right? You know, that it's, it's a community Absolutely. that takes things very seriously, you know, that, that, you know, safety hygiene was really important. And what we felt was that, you know, there's this kind of gap in our understanding of, of inks, right? Um, I'm not necessarily advocating for FDA oversight, but there is, you know, at present, the FDA chooses not to exercise their oversight, except yeah. in very limited cases. And so when we started talking to, to tattooers in our area and, and saying, well, okay, what are you using for inks? Where do you get them from? What do you know about them, right? You know, what do you, tell us what you understand are in the inks, what you understand about the safety. We realized there was this sort of gap and what, what I couldn't shake the concern of was that, you know, there was this potential for mischief, right? Um, because there is no, you know, there's nobody really sort of checking in terms of what's going in these inks. And, you know, the popularity of tattoos is exploding that I worried it could create the kind of environment where, you know, somebody who was somewhat unscrupulous could, you know, start throwing some inks together. Um, and as Guy pointed out, you know, that may not last on the market for very long, but, you know, that's going to go into people. It's, it's, and it could have an impact. So that really bothered me that, you know, tattooers and their clients were sort of obligated to kind of take everything at face value. Um, and so we wanted to, to bridge that gap and create a resource um, that, you know, a, a tattooer could go to, look at what's in the ink, you know, try to provide some insight in terms of our, our best understanding of the literature, you know, is this a potential hazard in here? Is this not a potential hazard? This is what we know. You know, we're not saying use it or don't use it, but this is the best information we have. You know, do with that what you will. Um, and our long-term goal is, you know, there's there's so so many inks out there, and of course, there's always new batches being made. We're also trying to develop take take what we're doing in our lab with you know sort of high-end research equipment and start developing analogs for high school and general chemistry labs at colleges to start screening these tattoo inks. Um, you know, will they be able to achieve the same level of analysis that we can? Probably not, but our hope is that they might be able to start identifying inks that could be problematic. And then we can focus our efforts on studying those inks. Um, and, and flagging something if there's a problem early on before, you know, it takes, you know, a bunch of people having some horrible reaction to it and, you know, sort of word zipping around the community. That's interesting. So can you tell us about some of the chemical reactions that you're, that you're seeing that are initiated by light? Um, so that's an interesting, it's an interesting question. And, you know, um, we're, I want to think about how I want to answer this, um, because again, we haven't published a lot of our work yet, so there, you okay. know, I have to be careful what I, I can't disclose too many specifics yet, but generally, right, what, what's known in the literature, and we're, we've seen the same thing, is, um, you know, under intense illumination, you know, you can see pigments break down. You know, I put up pigment yellow 77, for example, there's a very nice detailed study that shows it can break down into a variety of photo products. One of the challenges though, with all of the studies that are out there is they're all done in um, what we would call non-aqueous solvents. So they're, they're basically, they're not done in water. Right, so it's it's more akin to what you would use for like paint thinner than say trying to mimic 
um, you know, the environment of the human body. And so we're not clear right now how much that work translates over to, to, um, to the human model. There is some really nice work um, out of Germany that has demonstrated, I think with a, with a couple of red pigments, the formation of some photo products in the skin. Generally what happens, right? You can think about, you know, pigment molecules as sort of being large, um, you know, large sort of molecules with sort of dis distinct sections kind of stitched together. And that's what gives it the light. And so what sort of seems to happen is it'll kind of break apart, you know, into the sort of building blocks. Um, but of course, you know, in a biological environment, you have proteins, you have lots of stuff kind of floating around. Um, and it's not, it's not clear where all that chemistry is going. And so we're trying to, to follow it out. And, and so at the moment we've been looking at, you know, taking systems that people have looked at outside of water, seeing what's happening there, and then trying to now do it in water and seeing what it breaks down into. The problem is it's, you know, it, it doesn't go from one thing to another thing. It goes from one thing to 16 things. And it takes a while to break those 16 things down and figure out, you know, what's different about this component versus that component because they can be kind of similar. So it's, it's we're getting there, but we don't have a, a totally clear picture yet. Um, and we eventually want to start looking at what happens when you throw some model proteins in there. Can you start sticking these things to proteins? Where do they go? Sure. Um, how relevant do you think um, it would be to study people who have had tattoos over time? Is there a way to, I know that you're working on uh, the skin and such as things like that, but how valuable would that information to be to someone like you? So, you know, in the abstract, it's tremendously valuable. But the problem is when you start involving, so, so the reason that tattoo research in Europe fell off is that when you start involving people or animal models, the level of complication goes up tenfold. There's a lot more involved in terms of internal review boards, um, NIH level uh, kind of regulations. And so even looking at animal models is, is challenging. And so up until about a decade ago, in Europe, you could use an animal model to study tattoos. And so people were using rats, they were using pigs, they were using whatever. The EU changed those regulations to prevent that. And so as a consequence, it's really, really difficult to do work on tattoos with living subjects. Um, even, even collecting data, we have to be care, you know, from people that have tattoos, we have to be careful because it's very easy to misstep. And, you know, these policies are in place for good reason, right? They're, you know, they're there to try to prevent, um, you know, you know, abuse of medical information and, and things like that. But it's very difficult within science to do that kind of work to, you know, to even just to talk, let alone say like taking a small scan, you know, skin sample, something like that. It's, it's very challenging um, to get approval to do that. And that's not even the kind of work that we typically do. Mm -hmm. So there's an extra bar there for us. Um, I think the next step is working with collaborators that can grow better models of artificial skin okay. and what we're working with and and try to get a little bit closer to um, to something that, that looks more like you know human skin um, but even that that's a very there, there's a real art form to that and it requires a lot of highly specialized equipment and knowledge very interesting um, can you tell us some of a little bit about the methods that you're using here um, that are spectroscopic or electroanalytical 
Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I mentioned before we, you know, we use a lot of characterization equipment. So electron microscopy, um, we use some, so when we talk about a spectroscopic technique, right, that's something that's using light to, to probe something, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, most of these pigments, most molecules will absorb certain colors of light and not other ones. And so that makes kind of a molecular fingerprint, right? We can say, okay, this molecule absorbs like that, but this one absorbs with this shape over here. So we have this and not that. So um, we've been doing some work, you know, just to sort of see where the tattoo pigments are actually absorbing. I think most of that's actually available on what's in my ink to see, you know, where the wavelengths of light kick in um, and can we identify maybe certain components of the, of the different pigments or the molecules. Um, my lab does a lot of work with laser, um, with lasers, trying to, to use lasers as a tool to watch what happens at very short times. Um, so if you want to watch, if you want to observe some process in chemistry that you know, happens on a sub-millisecond time scale, usually you have to use light to do it. And so we, we do a lot of what's known as transient absorption spectroscopy, where we'll use a laser to start a reaction and then watch with light over time, you know, from nanoseconds and longer as, you know, we go from something that looks like this for an absorbance to something that looks like this, to something that looks like this. And we can sort of use those fingerprints to follow what's going on in time. Um, in Texas, we're using a really interesting technique called nanosecond shadowgraphy. And so this is, if you've ever, you know, had a candle and, you know, held your hand up to make like a barking dog, it's the same idea. But what happens is a laser comes in to strike the surface of the tattoo pigment or, or whatever you want to study. And then another laser comes from behind it. And you can, that, that second laser sort of backlights it just like you would with a candle and a barking dog. And so we can watch um, basically in real time as the laser hits, right? And then, you know, by changing when this laser hits and this laser hits, we can go from the moment of impact out much farther in time and actually watch as we see some local heating and then you know, maybe there's fragmentation or shockwaves produced. Um, at least in general, that's how the technique works. And so we're we're trying to, uh, you know, we're we're in the process of figuring out how we can make make supported samples of tattoo inks that we can then zap with the laser and put into this this system. You know, unfortunately, COVID nineteen has really impacted our ability to. Yeah. To move as quickly on this as we'd like to, um, but we're we're getting there. So, so we throw a lot of things at it, basically. You see a stark uh, contrast in results of laser versus uh, sunlight, and if laser is very dangerous and causing such a carcinogenic reaction, would it uh, pay in mind to invest in research developing other tattoo removal techniques? Yeah. So you know, I I don't. I don't want to say that we know for sure now that there is a, a specific hazard with lasers. We don't know that, but we, 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 we don't know either way yet. Um, there, there's a really interesting group in Denmark that has a, a, a clinic that's all entirely focused on tattoos. Um, and they're, they're developing a technique of tattoo removal that, you know, it, it sounds a little intense, but basically they're sort of shaving the skin off. It's, a, it's an established medical procedure already. Um, but their argument is, you know, if there is a problem with the pigments, right? And most of the time it's, it's allergy related. You know, if we do laser tattoo removal, that pigment is going to go somewhere within the body. Yeah. Right. If we shave that off in a sort of controlled medical way, we're taking all that pigment away. Um, and so they're, you know, last I knew they had made some really interesting strides in that direction. And 
you know, I think if I had to have a tattoo removed right now, I would probably want to do this dermatome shaving over say sure. laser tattoo removal, you know, not to, to be too critical of, of laser tattoo removal, but you know, for, for us, right. We have a, a class four laser, same, same thing that you would have in a, a medical environment. You know, it took us six months of approvals, documented safety trainings, um, a lot of a lot of things in place to prevent, uh, you know, possible hazards or dangers. If you want to get into laser tattoo removal, as far as I understand, it takes about a weekend. Um, and so, you know, there's again, it's an area where I don't know that there's a lot of insight, and it concerns me because the whole industry is based on this model of the laser comes in, it causes the tattoo pigments to, to fragment, and then, you know, they can become mobile and the body can remove them. And I'm not, re I'm not convinced yet that that's the correct model. Um, sure. And so I don't, I don't think we really know well enough what's going on and that, that makes me a little reluctant to, to wholeheartedly endorse that. Yeah, I, I agree too. There's, um, I guess, a lot more heavy speculation now because that's um, kind of a hot topic in the industry, the, the laser removal process. And if that didn't need to be there, um, is it, would the results still be the same? Something to worry about. Right. You know, and I think the, the, the rationale for under, underlining a lot of what we do, you know, the fact that, that light can cause things to change is demonstrated by the fact that it's not uncommon with laser tattoo removal for the, the, the pigment, you know, the embedded pigments to change color when exposed to the laser, right? So you, you know, that's a very obvious example of light driving some kind of chemical transformation, sure. um, you know, that I, that, that's not at all uncommon. Very interesting. Um, so I, I know that we do have to close off here in a couple of minutes. So I'm curious how you would say, and uh, how does analytical chemistry, material science, cell biology, how does that translate to your everyday tattooer? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of what motivates us is, you know, we genuinely want to empower the people in your community to, to have the best products and the best outcomes for your clients. You know, somebody asked me at one point, you know, are you, are you anti-tattoo or you hope, and I said, no, not at all. Right. You know, there, there's a lot of people in the lab that have tattoos. There are people that have gotten more tattoos since they started working on it. Um, you know, we, we have expertise and we have access to tools that most people don't. So we can provide some oversight here and at the same time you know hopefully do some interesting science um but our our goal is to take the skill set and the tools that we have and help empower tattoo artists clients even ink manufacturers to to develop the best products the safest products beyond that you know when we talked to tattooers you know you know, why do you like this ink? Why don't you like that ink? You know, it's not uncommon to hear things like, oh, this ink doesn't suspend very well. I don't know why, you know, this one fades. This one's hard to work with the guns. You know, that's, that's all sort of material science. It's chemistry. It's the kind of things that, you know, people in my world think a lot about and, and sort of know how to address a lot of those questions too. So, Along the way, we also think we may be able to help contribute to some understanding of, well, how do you make a better tattooing just from a usability standpoint? Um, so that's where we see our role and, and how we feel like we can interface, you know, with, with the, the community of, you know, tattooers and tattoo enthusiasts is, is not in trying to cause problems, but in trying to really empower a community of really dedicated, serious professionals to, to be in a position to do the best job they can. That is awesome. I'm, I, I love, love hearing that. Um, my last question for you, yeah. uh, when you initially decided to 
kind of push forward with the NIH funding. Can you tell me about that experience a little bit and how you felt like, what was your, what were you telling yourself? Like, I'm going to go for this. I, I know I can do it. Um, and then just a little process about that. Yeah, I, um, you know, I knew there was a lot of interest in the area, you know, just from talking to people, right? Sure. You know, that it was an idea that, that people liked. Um, and I, I sort of decided, all right, well, let's, let's throw a grant proposal out there and I'll just sort of see what they say, right? I don't think it's going to get funded. That's okay. Most of the time it doesn't, you know, you, you've got to resubmit a couple times, you know, address reviewer, you know, criticisms. Um, I was really surprised to be honest with you when it got funded right off the bat. And I think, um, I think everybody sort of was and, and, you know, the, the level of enthusiasm for it was, was pretty high. And, you know, we were very fortunate to work with a, a good program officer in NIH that helped us sort of, you know, adapt a few things, um, uh, you know, and, and kind of work us through the process when it became clear that, that, you know, the, the reviewers for the grant really liked it and thought it should be funded. Um, so, I, I mean, it was a, it was a genuine shock. You know, I was at home for COVID. I'm still at home for COVID. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, and when you submit a grant to NIH, you get a, a score, right? And if it's mm -hmm. below a certain level, it's usually fundable. And I got the score at like 11 o'clock at night. And I was, you know, like, I don't think I fell asleep till four o'clock in the morning. I was so shocked. Um, so it was pretty, it was, it was a pretty wild experience. Um, and, and to be honest with you, a, a little unexpected, but that is, um, that is great. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah. And then um, gathered your team. Yeah. I do have a couple questions from the chat rooms um, and then Guy just beamed on. So I just want to make sure that we have a little bit of time for everything. So, so Guy, uh, let's see what you have and then we'll. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I was, I've just been kind of lurking in the background and trying to imagine the sort of questions that have popped up for me and, and my, uh, you know, my colleagues and I over the years. And, uh, you know, you did touch on particle size a little bit and how these particles break down. Mm -hmm. And of course, color is a consequence of, of fine structure, right? I mean, it's basically got to be a, have a structure that interferes certain wavelengths of light in order to appear to be that color, because color is actually just a, a function of wavelength of light. So as these pigments break down, they lose that fine structure. Do they also sort of gray out as a result of that? Um what what happens is you know they they shift from maybe absorbing visible light to absorbing more like ultraviolet light because um, sooner or later you know all molecules will absorb light it's just some molecules will only absorb very high energy light and so what happens is that because you lose that absorbance in the visible your eyes don't pick up that new absorbance in the ultraviolet and so as a consequence, you, it fades, it loses that. Um, that's for molecular pigments. There are, and we don't understand honestly at, at this point how widespread it is, but there are certainly solid components to some tattoo inks that are not you know, molecular pigments. So TiO2, for example, titania, super common in white pigments or white inks. Um, and there, we start thinking about particle size because, you know, and, and again, there is some research, although not sort of systematic and certainly not from this country, you know, that you can have particles of, of TiO2 that are, you know, below hundred nanometers. So they're, they're what we would call true nanoparticle. And as you get smaller, those can become mobile within the body and they can pass through cell membranes and start doing all sorts of, of mischief. Um, right. So nanoparticles themselves can be a carcinogen just because of their size. And so that's one of the things we want to understand is, do we have a whole bunch of, you know, small nanoparticles floating around? And, and if we start whacking them with, with lasers, do we, you know, shoot nanoparticles throughout your body? Right. Now, I know that there was a period there where nanoscale titanium dioxide was very widespread in cosmetics and things like that. And I mm -hmm. think that 
it was sort of a pullback from that. But, uh, you know, one of the essential features of these particles is they're kind of needle shaped. They're, mm -hmm. you know, cigar shaped, basically. And, uh, and they might work really well in something like a sunscreen. But I think one of the things that we've recognized as tattooers is that uh, below a certain size, particles don't stay in the skin very well and they don't reflect uh, you know, light very well. So uh, I think that that was another question that I had for you was about uh, particle size in, in terms of healing into the skin and, and staying there. And if you know, there's been any kind of a observations in terms of, oh, this seems to uh, get mobile very easily and wash away while this seems to stay put. I, I think there is a lot of informed speculation, but I don't know that there is, you know, documented science on that because again, it's, it's, it's a challenging question that sort of requires, you know, moving between sort of model systems like we look at to more, you know, authentically biological systems. And when you do that, it can be challenging to get that kind of work approved. Right, gotcha. Yeah, and, and then of course, the idea of uh, getting tattooists and tattoo collectors to broadly participate in very detailed questionnaires, that gets tricky uh, as well, you know, and, and uh, uh, it's hard to keep opinions separated from facts and that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah. uh, it certainly would be interesting because uh, I think ultimately, you know, no one wants to, to drive a popular art form into, back into the underground. We know what happens then. People don't stop practicing mm -hmm. it. It, uh, it. It just goes to the black market and uh, all the consequences that come with that. Uh, so cooperation between disciplines, I think, is, is essential. So if, if there is a way that, uh, you know, the, the tattoo profession and the scientific disciplines could... Uh, uh, regularly communicate on this subject, you know, have, have the latest findings, um, maybe even uh, safe lists. Uh, I, I guess this would be another uh, question. My, my final question before we go over the chat room is what does an artist do if they want to have a pigment tested for safety? Is there a way to do that? No. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to provide some insight there. But, you know, I, I have to be careful to say that, you know, we can't, you know, we're, we're not in a position to say, yes, this is safe. No, that's not safe. The best we can say, well, you know, look, there's, there's a lot of nickel in this. You know, nickel can cause some problems. We see a whole bunch of nanoparticles in this. You know, we know nanoparticles can cause a problem. But, you know, it, but there is no sort of like underwriter's laboratory for tattoo inks. Um, I wonder if maybe there should be, um, but you know, at the present, at the present moment in time, there is not. And so we're trying to provide some, some crossover there. I guess the, the thing I would just say to artists and, and collectors too, is, uh, you know, the pigments that you use, um, you know, reputation really is everything. Um, talk to other artists, ask them what they're using, ask them how long they've been using them. When a new product line comes out, I don't just start using it. Wow, this looks great. Uh, because I know that that might result in me having to fix my work and my reputation. Um, and so once it's been recommended to me strongly by several trusted uh, colleagues, uh, I'll consider it. And even then I'll phase it in slowly. You really have to take these things when it comes to the actual chemical substances that you're putting in the skin, uh, not just pigments, but uh, things like tattoo glides and uh, foaming soaps and things like that, all of these things really need to uh, uh, be considered from a long-term perspective. Uh, ask people who've been using them, you know, make sure that there is a reputation there, that it's, it's got a history of uh, not uh, giving people problems. Uh, you can find out this information. Uh, you shouldn't have to just stumble around in the dark. Hey, guys, sorry to, uh, to cut everybody off, but we do have a hard out here. And uh -huh. uh, we do have uh, a good set of questions. So we're wondering, um, like, John, would, would you be willing to maybe come back for another yeah. half hour to do this at another time or to yeah. uh, record something and then we could release it? Or I, I'd love to. I mean, a, a big part of what we're trying to do is to, just like Guy said, you know, 
create create some bridge there and and you know transfer what we know right now to to your community and and so yeah I'd love okay. to come back on and, and uh... we'll have to end on the on the cliffhanger. There has been a lot of talk that people think that this research is going to enable big corporations to to, to take over the ink business. And um, I, I feel like obviously we can't open up that can of worms uh, one minute past your heart out. But um, everyone will have to uh, stay tuned to uh, to to get that to get our inside uh, scoop on that, I guess. Yeah, and anyone who, who watches this and has questions, submit them to us. And when we get back together with uh, John, uh, we will be able to, you know, go into some detail. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to come back and chat. I'm, I'm happy to work with you and we'll set something up. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been very illuminating. Thank you, Lauren, for, uh, for helping with the questions. Uh, this has all been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Okay, now the time everyone has to like wave and make funny faces so that when I click the uh, the button, it's ending on a good note. All right. Cheers, okay. everyone.